0: For those of you that are new to our church, I just want to say thanks for being here today and for coming out and being a part of this. If you're one of the parents of one of our teenagers, uh, thank you for trusting us with your kiddos and for allowing us the opportunity uh, just to partner with you and to be a part of this process of helping your kiddos to grow up and to know Jesus and to walk with him in a personal way. Uh, I hope that you'll just relax a little while and let us uh, kind of minister to you through the word of God this morning that it might speak to you. Uh, I do want to say a word of apology to the parents that are here that are going to be staying for the dinner. I wanted to stay with you guys and, uh, and visit with you. I've been up all morning sick and throwing up, and so I don't think it would be smart for me to mix and mingle with you. But if you'll come back next week, I will do that, and I will hang out with you, and, uh, and we'll get to visit and, uh, and catch up. Uh, we're just praying right now that God will get us through the message and that everything uh, will uh, stay where it's supposed to for just a little while longer, okay? So if you've been with us uh, lately, you know we're in the middle of a series in the book of the Song of Solomon. It is a love song um, that is a picture of God's love for His church, for God's love for His people. Uh, we've shared in the past, and let me just bring you up to speed if this is your first time to join us, that the, the Song of Solomon is this love song that was sung in worship. It was not meant to be a rated R Type experience. It was meant to be something that would point the people of God to the love of God, the love that God has for them. It's a song that was sung during Passover event, that week of Passover, that reminded them that God had chosen them as his people to be his bride. Uh, He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet he chose a people that were nobody. To be his own. It's a beautiful picture of what God did with us and how that God came not because of anything special in us, but because of this deep love inside of him that he chose us to be his bride. Uh, The Bible refers to the church as the bride of Christ, and it reminds us again and again that we are chosen, that we are special, and that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are declared perfect in God's sight. Uh, this has been a song that has, has progressed all the way through. Uh, last week we ended with the, the um, there was this dream sequence where the, the girl was asleep and dreaming, and she dreamed um, that, uh, that her, her groom had left her temporarily. And, and yet it ended on a, on, a, on a high note as she uh, searched for him and she found him, and he went back down into his garden and enjoyed uh, all the things that she had prepared for him. There's a lot of poetic language in this book that makes it a little bit difficult to understand. One of the verses that we'll look at today um, has been described as one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. So I don't pretend to have a a corner on the market. I don't pretend to be the guy that's got everything figured out. But I'm going to give you uh, my best understanding of what God's Word says in this part that we will look at today. We're going to be in chapter 6 today. And... um, one of the poetic languages and images that are used in this is that he refers to her and her love that she is offering to him as his garden. And so when it says that he goes down into his garden, it's meaning that he is coming together with her, that he is, uh, is experiencing all the love that she has stored up for him and she has prepared for him, and, and she is making that available to him, and he is enjoying every moment of that. She will now introduce a, a term into this, uh, this song uh, that describes his garden, if you will. She calls it an orchard. And uh, and so when we get to that, we'll explain kind of what's going on. But but last week we ended in, in chapter 6, verse two, where, uh, 2 and 3, where it says, My beloved has gone down to his garden. In other words, he's returned to me. He's come to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. He is there enjoying everything that she has prepared for him. And then she closes, or we closed last week, with this, this phrase where she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And so when she was hunting for him, her friends asked her, where, where is he gone? Where do you think he would be? Who who would he love to hang out with the most? And she says, Honestly, his love is for me, and that's where he would be. And she goes and she finds him there, and they are back together. So a, a key statement in all of this that we will build upon today is this statement that I am my beloved's, I am his and he is mine. It's not just that that she's saying I belong to him and and we go together, but he's saying that that, that he is my identity. We live in a world today where we look for our identity in a lot of different places. Uh, Some of your parents and some of these are your kiddos, and, and it's not uncommon for a parent to introduce themselves and say, hi, I'm Catherine's dad. Hi, I'm Rebecca's dad, and, and that's part of our identity. And and when we're meeting other parents, we introduce ourselves as that person's parents. Uh Sometimes when you're meeting, and especially with men meeting each other, they'll introduce themselves by their occupation. Hi, I'm, I'm a chemical engineer, or I'm a school teacher, or I'm a whatever. And, and we, we introduce ourselves sometimes by our occupation. It's, it's nothing for me to show up on the scene with the police department or the fire department I introduce myself as a chaplain for the police department or for the, the fire department. Uh, we introduce ourselves many times, and we find our identity in the things that we do. Uh and and there's some value in that it helps people to understand what we're all about it helps people to understand what's important to us but the reality is that's not really meant to be our identity our identity is found in Christ where she says I am his she's not just saying I belong to him she's saying that's my identity you want to know who I am well I'll tell you who I am I'm his End of story. That's it. That's who I am. And, and as she declares this over him, that I am his, that's my, he is my identity. He is who I find myself in. He begins to sing over her again. The song that he will sing over her again today is familiar language. It's already been used in this, in this book. And, and yet I want us to understand that the reason that it's included again is because it's a picture of how God is constantly singing over his bride. God it's not like the man who got married and, and experienced some difficulty in his marriage, and, and they went to a marriage counselor, and, and the wife says to the marriage counselor, well, I just don't feel like he loves me. And the counselor looks at the man and says, well, do you love your wife? And he says, well, yes, I told her that on the wedding night, and if it changes, I'll let her know. That's not the way God is. God sings over us again and again and again. And there's a reason that God does that. He wants that song to get stuck in our head and to make its way down into our heart. You ever watched a commercial over and over and over again, and later on, you find yourself singing the jingle of that dumb commercial? may not even be a product you like, but it's stuck in your head. Well, that's kind of what God's doing here. He's, He's singing again over His bride because He wants to make sure that that sticks and that it's a part of who we are, that it sinks down deep into our identity, and we build our identity upon what God says about us. Not what the world says about us. It's really poignant in this poem that that be the case because the, the bride that's been chosen was a farmhand. She was a girl who was forced basically into slavery by her brothers to tend the vineyards. The, the book starts by her saying, Don't look at my dark skin and judge me. My brothers force me into the fields. And what she was saying is, I would never have been a candidate to be the queen. I would never have been the candidate to be chosen by the king. And yet for some unknown reason to me, he chose me. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of God choosing that which is not choosable. Choosing that which is not lovable. And and in that process of him pouring out his love upon us and him singing over us again and again and again, we begin to understand that he's serious about this that he really does love us, that his grace is a very real and tangible thing. And so God comes and he sings over his bride again. It's it's, it's portrayed to us through this love song. And so as she says, I am his, that's my identity. Verse 4, he says to her as he sings over her, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Now, we've talked and laughed a lot in this series about these pickup lines that that he uses on her. And and, and you'll see these languages used again, these, these descriptions, and he's going to use animals to describe different parts of her. He's trying to describe how lovely that she is. And when he says and compares her to Tisra, that was the the temporary capital of of the the, the northern part of Israel for a while before Samaria was chosen. It was chosen because of its great beauty and and the landscape and all that, that encompassed it. It was the most beautiful place that they could imagine, and it became the temporary capital of the northern kingdom. And then he says that she is as lovely as Jerusalem, which was the the, the capital of the southern part of Jerusalem. And, And he's talking about the splendor that he sees in her. And then he inserts this phrase, you're awesome as an army with banners. And you're going, what in the world is he trying to say? Well, for a general in the army looking out over his troops, they would be divided into different kinds of, of sections and, and, uh, and units and brigades, and each would have a banner so that the people would know this is my group and this is who I congregate with and this is who I fight with. And for a general looking out over his army and seeing banner after banner after banner brings him great delight to know that he is in, in the midst of an abundance of protection and provision. And so he's saying everything about you is beautiful, it's lovely, it's awesome. And then verse 5, he is captivated with her eyes. And he says, turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Now, he's not literally asking her to turn and to walk away. He's letting her know how powerful her look is. They say that the eyes are the, soul, uh, are, are the window to the soul. And, and he's saying, as I look into your eyes, it's overwhelming. It's delightful. It's overpowering. Your eyes, he says, hold me captive. They draw me in. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes it's hard for me to picture God looking at us that way. I mean, I, I look at the, the stuff, I look at the failures, I look at the, the things that I do or that I don't do. And, and maybe you are a lot like me that you grew up in this culture that everything is judged by performance. You perform well, you're the hero. You muff the punt. And all of a sudden, you're not. And so life is this roller coaster of one minute you're, you're, you're the hero and the next minute you're the zero. And, 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 and it's hard for us to picture God looking at us and consistently, continually saying, you're perfect. You're everything I ever dreamed in a bride. Now we're perfect not because of anything that we've done, not because of, of the way that we've produced, not because of anything that we've accomplished, but we are perfect because of what Jesus has accomplished. It's his righteousness that clothes us. The Bible says that we are clothed in the righteous robes of Christ so that when the Father looks at us, what he sees is not us and our failure, but he sees Christ and Christ's success. And so he says to her, he says, your eyes are are, are overwhelming to me. Your hair, here we go, guys, use this one tonight and see how it works, okay? Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Oh, boy. Who's going to try that tonight? Reuben, all right, let me know how it works, buddy. You've only got one eye. You may be without an eye after this, so um, good luck. What's he saying? It's a picture of this this flock of goats coming down the hill and the bouncing of the, the black, shiny hair. And he's saying, your hair is beautiful as it falls upon your shoulders. That's a compliment that he's paying to his wife. Your teeth, oh, here we go, your teeth are like a flock of ooze that, that have come up from the washing. They're clean, hey, that's good, and all of them bear a twin. In other words, there's, there's one on each side, uh, and, and not one of them has lost its young. You don't have any teeth missing. Hey, that's a pretty good compliment, huh? you got a full set of teeth, and they're clean, and they're shiny. And he's saying, your smile, your smile is so attractive, is what he's trying to say to his wife. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. Your cheeks are rosy and red. And then he compares her to all the other women that are out there. He says, there's 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. Hear what he's saying. Of all the queens, the greatest of all the women, of the concubines, the ones that are right underneath him, and, and all the virgins, all the maidens who've yet to be married, of, of all the women in the land, he's saying, guess what? You're it for me. You're the one for me. You're the only one of her mother. And, and, and that's basically saying one of two things. either Either you're the only daughter with those mean brothers, or you are the favorite daughter of your mother. The one who was pure to her, who bore her, faithful and, and devoted is what he's trying to say. She needed to hear this again and again, just like the rest of us need to hear that again and again. It's not enough for us to hear the gospel once. It's not enough for us to, to, to hear God say, I'm, I'm pleased with what you're doing. We need to hear that over and over and over again. So he sings over her once again. This idea of, of, a, of a husband singing over his bride is not a new thing. I do it for Janet all the time. No, no, that didn't work. It wouldn't work. But you know, we do see this back in the book of Genesis. You may not realize that it's a song, but when God has created Adam and he looks in the garden and he says, it's not good for a man to be alone. Let us make a helper for him that is suitable for him. And God calls Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He takes out a rib. He forms Eve. And then the Bible says he brings her to him. And when he wakes up, he realizes it's not a dream. And if you look in your, in your scripture, that, that next few phrases where he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is indented. You know why? It was a song that he is singing over his bride. He is so excited and so thankful and so grateful for what God has provided for him. Finally, someone that fits him, someone that he can do life with, someone, by the way, that was necessary in order for him to fulfill God's command to to replenish the earth, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth to be fruitful and to multiply. Those are all things that Adam could not accomplish on his own. And so God brought to him a wife and and he sang over his bride. Here we see that same thing happening where the groom is singing over his bride just like it was meant to be done back in the Garden of Eden before sin interfered with this relationship. The young women saw her and called her blessed. Blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. They are saying, you are blessed to be his. Of all the women to be chosen, you are the one that's blessed to be called his wife. And so God sings over his bride again and again and again. Uh, he, He displays his love for all to see. There's nothing hidden about the love of God. I'm thankful that when Jesus died for our sins, he didn't do it in a dark dungeon. But he did it on a cross on a hill for the whole world to see. There's nothing hidden, nothing disguised about the depth of the love that Jesus has for us. Scripture says that greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. Jesus did that for us, and he did it publicly, displaying his love. Someone has said that when Jesus died on the cross, a question was asked, Jesus, how much do you love us? And he stretched out his arms, and he died and said, this much. This is how much I love you. Jesus on the cross is a picture of that great love that the father has for us who is sacrificing everything and so he says even the young women of that day the queens and the concubines they all know how blessed that she is we need to hear this song again and again and let it ring in our ears but to be honest just hearing it with our ears is not enough we need it to sink down and hit deep in our soul it needs to change us and, and shift our identity. It needs to help us to see that, that the only person worthy of us uh, uh, attaching our identity to is, is Jesus Christ. She is so changed by this song, so changed by this experience. Her identity now is shifting to this man that her friends hardly recognize her. Remember we said that there's three different parties that are in this song. There's the, the part that the woman sings, the part that the man sings, and then this chorus that the friends would fill in. Well, here we shift to the chorus where the friends are filling in, and they ask a question, who is this woman? She's so being transformed by his love that the friends are asking, who is this woman that looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Who is this woman? She's so different, she's so glowing, she's so beautiful. She's been transformed. Her old self is no more, and now who she is, this new identity is found in the one that she loves. So who is this and how did this transformation occur? And now she tells us how that transformation occurred. This is a verse that that is so difficult for so many to, to interpret, so let me share with you what I gather from it, and what I think is, is in line with the whole context of, of the, the Passover song and, and all of that, here's what I think it's saying. She says, I went down to the nut orchard. Again, he refers to her as his garden, okay? And now she is referring to him as her nut orchard, a place that she would go, a place that he has prepared for her. With, with wonderful delights, with all kinds of new things in them that, that she's going to get to experience and to enjoy. And, and so she says, I went to the nut orchard, and I went to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And so look at these key words, the blossoms and the buds and the blooms. And in that you see this is the sign of new life. It's not, it's not life in its fullest yet. The, the, the buds haven't opened and they haven't fully given forth everything that they have. But, but there's a sign of new life. There is a promise of, of, of much more to come. And she says, when I went to him, I found in him this new life. I found in him that this, this new life is there. And, and I don't pretend to have uh, figured it all out. I don't pr- pretend to have, have seen everything that there is to see. But you know what? I saw some blooms and I saw some blossoms and I saw some buds. And that tells me that there's more to come in this one that loves me. It's a love that he has prepared for her. It's a love that is, that is there and it's available for her. He has worked to, to, to till the garden, to plant the garden, to nurture the garden, to grow the garden. And now she gets to go to this, this grove, this orchard. And see all that he has for her. That's the thing, she says, that swept me away. Look at the language that she uses. Again, poetic. But verse 12, she says, before I was aware. So it, it snuck up on me. I, I wasn't prepared for this. I wasn't prepared for what was about to happen. But, but before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Oh, man, I've wrestled with what in the world is she saying here? Her identity is now changed, right? She is no longer who she used to be, that slave girl working the fields. But now she has a new family. She has a husband. She has her groom there with her. He is now her kinsman. And she says, as I went into the nut orchard and I looked at all that he had prepared for me and all that was still to come before I could... Even even be aware, I was swept away and put right there in his presence. Right there among the chariots, the best of the best of the warriors, the, the kinsman, the one that was a kinsman-redeemer theme that runs all the way through the Old Testament. And she says, he's my prince. We might would say, my prince charming, the one who has captivated my heart, the one who has gathered me in, the one who has called me. So before she knew it, she was all in, completely in, head first, head over heels, in love with him. That's how it happened, she said. And that's why her friends are asking, who is this girl? This shy little farmhand who who, who was a slave, who is she now? Look at her. Look at what this relationship has done to her. She says also here, it's interesting That it was her desire that put her in his presence. It wasn't forced. It wasn't manipulated. He just displayed for her all the love that he had for her and all the love that was yet to come. And she said, my heart couldn't resist. I wanted to be his. I wanted to be fully his. He is now my kinsman. He is now my family. He is now my most loved. It was a huge heart shift that left her noticeably changed to where her friend said, who is this one that looks down like the dawn, beautiful as a moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Who is this woman? We don't even recognize her. And that led her friends to do something that's kind of strange. The friends have been helping her to this point. Remember, they, she looked for her husband and, and they helped her with the hunt. They, they, they coached her in that, in that process. And now here they see that she's changed and she's leaving the old life behind, which meant she'd be leaving them behind. And look what they say to her in verse 13. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return that we could look upon you. In other words, we want your company. Don't, don't leave us behind to go with him. Stay with us. They're asking her to ride the fence, to to, to be in between those two worlds, to to try to hang on to everything in the past and yet to go forward with this king who has ransomed and chosen her. And what they're literally doing is playing a tug-of-war with her back and forth. Have you ever sensed that same tug-of-war going on in your heart? When your heart wants to go forward with God and everything in this world is trying to pull you back to who you used to be? There's this tug of war going on inside of her, and, and, and they're pulling and saying, don't leave us. And, and he's calling her to come and to be his, can be completely his. And there's this tug of war going back and forth. And I don't know about you, but that tug of war is a familiar war. It's one that we all face as we seek to go forward with God. She's saying, I'm not content to be who I used to be. I want to be who he's called me to be, who he says that I am. He says that I'm perfect, that's what I want to be. He says that I'm beautiful, that's what I want to be for him. I want to be everything that he's declared me to be. And I can't do that and hang on to my past. So they call her to return, return, four different times. And then her man steps in. And he rebukes those friends. He says, why should you? Why should you get to look upon her? She's not yours. She's mine. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? And he pictures these, these two things waging war for her, and she's trapped in the middle doing this dance in the middle, and, and, and both sides are, are after her. Both sides want her. And he's like, she's pledged her loyalty to me. I've chosen her. I've poured out my love for her. Why would you want to call her back? If you're a true friend, why would you want her to tone it down? Why would you want her to water down her commitment to me? He stands in as a husband should to protect his wife. It's something that we see lacking in the garden that led to sin. Remember that scene? There's Adam and Eve in the garden. She's standing there and scripture says he's right there beside her. And the serpent comes up and begins to plant doubts in her mind about everything that the father had said About her. Surely God didn't say. Surely He didn't mean. Surely, surely you understand that He does not want your best. And Adam stood silent as Eve was enticed. This groom refuses to do so. Here's the friends trying to entice her to come back. And this groom says, no, I'll not be silent. I'll not stand by and watch her heart turned away. I will continue to sing over her. I will, in fact, he's fixing to come right back and sing over her again in chapter 7. He's going to fire up another song. And he's saying, I am going to continue to sing over my bride until she is convinced that I am it. And that everything else is second best. And so he steps in and he does that. For those of us that have built our identity upon our performance, it's hard to imagine that God could love us like that. It's hard to picture that He would show up and, and, and be our defense, that He would call us to be Himself, that He would bring us into this, into this grove and show us these, these, these things that are there and yet are, are still growing and, and, and maturing. One of the neatest things about this love song that we see is that their love continues to deepen and mature, Every single chapter, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. If you like to blush, you ought to come back next week because it's going to get really uh, deep. And uh, very descriptive of the love that he finds and the delight that he has in her. She was his and he was hers. And the proof was that she had said, I jumped in head first. Even though my friend said, oh, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Just take it slow, take it easy. And she says, I can't. There is no way. Her desire was ignited within her. Her identity was changed. Her commitment was solidified. There was no turning back. She says, I am his and he is mine. And the Bible says that we've been given a new identity in Christ. You don't have to settle for an identity based upon stuff of this earth, based upon the things that you can accomplish, your identity can be found in the one who saves you, the one who loves you, the one who's given himself for you and promises you even more to come. But until you and I understand that and say, I am his and he is mine, and that's my identity, we will flounder and we will struggle and we will be pulled back and forth in this game of tug of war. I think the real challenge seems to be that we've got to clear the clutter and hear the song again and realize just how much our God loves us. For those of you who've never heard that love song sung over you, man, you've never heard God say just how much He loves you. He wants to come And sing over you today. Janet and I were talking about this concept last night of of God singing over us. And she said the image that comes to my mind every time I hear that phrase. She says, I flash back to the days that I held my babies in my arms. And I rocked them. And I sang songs about God's love over them. Because I wanted to imprint that in their mind. I never wanted them to doubt that Jesus loves me. Yes, I know. For the Bible tells me so. Singing those songs over your children is what God is doing with us. He is, he is singing that song. He wants it to, to be planted deep within us and for us to know. And so if you're here today and you've never heard that song, I want you to hear it loud and clear. Not just once, but again and again and again. It's a song of grace. It's a song of love. It's a song of God's mercy where he withholds the punishment that we deserve and he gives us great blessing in its place. It's a song that defines us from his perspective, not just from the world's perspective. And for those of you who already know him, and you've already heard that song, but you would have to say it's been a long time since you've heard that song. I would encourage you to quieten your spirit. To go, if you would, back into the grove and examine the buds and the blooms and the blossoms of his love that are just beginning to bud for you. And that say to you, hey, here's a a promise of what's to come, and and there's even more that will, will appear. How can we remain indifferent? in the face of a love so grand and so good. But it's not enough to hear the song. We need to let that song take root in our hearts. We need to be convinced that we really are who God says we are and that we are loved as much as he says that we're loved. We need to believe the story, embrace the story, experience the story. And then we can sing that same story over others. But until our hearts believe it and are transformed by it, it will do us little good. But here's the best news of all. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, It is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God that shifts our heart. It's God that puts all of this stuff on display and then lets us enjoy it and lets us see it. So, friend, I would ask you today, have you heard that song, and have you got it memorized? Do you know what you mean to Jesus? Because until you know that, there's going to be this great big emptiness inside of you. So what we're going to do is we're going to close in prayer today, and we're going to pray real quiet so we don't wake up our teenagers who've been up all weekend. These guys, listen, they have had an incredible weekend. It's been a long weekend. They've not gotten much sleep. But they've been given the gospel again and again and again. And I'm so thankful for that. So would you pray with me? And as we close this morning in prayer, i want to ask you to do one other thing. Would you pray with me for the Gilbert family? Uh, they lost their dad this week. And we'll have that funeral tomorrow. And, uh, and they'll be at the funeral home this afternoon in Sulphur at, at Robeson's. Um, and I would just ask you to keep those guys in your prayers as they move through this time of grief and Uh, and shock, and I just ask you to keep them uh, in your prayers even now. Let's pray.